Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. <laughs> it's David Cox. Oh, it's a creepy start to the new series. And I'm Josh <laughs> Matheson. And this week we are starting our seventh book. I mean, you'd, would you have thought we'd have lasted this long? I don't know. I thought we'd get bored after the second one, if I'm like honest. But you, like... You always hear about how many, like most podcasts, if you go to, if you search a topic and go and scroll down like five or six, if you click on it, I guarantee you it's got no more than 10 episodes because most people just go a couple of months and then go, oh, I can't be bothered. This is a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, but most podcasts don't have a Matt Gonzalez. He's just a grafter. I Uh, I wouldn't. 100%. Lol. Yeah. (laughs) Good to see you. It's the, it do it for listen. the fans. You know, you know, if it was me, I wouldn't have bothered for you. Uh, that's, that's basically what you need to know. <laughs> it's all good. I enjoy doing it. And also, it means that, you know, these are the only books I've read probably in the last 18 months because I've just been so rubbish. But you could probably ask people, what have you been reading? Oh, you know, um, I've just done... Animal Farm. Uh, Animal Farm. <laughs> Do you know, getting to my Agatha Christie's. Mm. Just, you know, just a um, smattering of all the classics. Silly ones like Pinocchio. I love little, Christmas. Little Carol. Dickens and then lighting well, it up done. with some well, Barry, you know. Yeah. Definitely. Well, this week we are looking at the 39 steps. Now, right. I actually saw this on the West End because it used to be at the West End for quite a long yeah. time, actually. It was there. Criterion. But it, yeah, but I believe it was a like a satire kind of parody version of this, wasn't it? it I feel like it's it wasn't even a satire of the original story. It was a satire of the Alfred Hitchcock film, which was already a loose adaptation. Right. So I feel like okay. it, the whole thing has travelled quite a bit from the original. So I don't. Right. And I I didn't see that show. It was always one I wanted to see, but never got a chance. So. Uh, I don't remember much of it, if I'm honest. I remember there being this stage performer who remembers everything that he reads called like the Great Marismo or something. And I remember it being like, I think some of it's set in Scotland, like it starts in Scotland. I don't want to lose my reputation as a lazy man, uh, but I did. I did. So I wanted to delve into it just 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 a little bit of the back, background of this book, just to have a yeah. little look at this. It's quite a famous protagonist, and the, and and this the, the main character in this book comes up in quite a lot of books, and has become sort of a well-known character. Not that I'd necessarily heard of him, but he is a Scottish character. Though apparently he didn't spend much much of his childhood in Scotland before he was no. moved away. So, but I didn't know if that that affected because we've not yet to have a book where the, the, the principal narration the is is anything but my own voice and i i just worry that people might after six books be very bored of this voice <laughs> and and want to see a shift in the default no you but do I, very I don't well. know so do we know who who's who's the author of this book we should probably mention that john bucken so his name is john i don't know if it's pronounced bucken or buchan or buchan or buchan or I don't know what it yeah, is yeah whatever the scottish Scot- version would be surely I can't pronounce. I don't know how it's pronounced. It's a truthful answer, but it's B U C H A N. You got Buchanan, like yeah. Buchanan. Buchanan, Buchanan. Yeah. Should we dive in then? Let's, let's let's jump into chapter one. Here we go. The thirty-nine steps, chapter one. The man who died. 
I returned from the city about three o'clock on that May afternoon, pretty well disgusted with life. I had been three months in the old country and was fed up with it. If anyone had told me a year ago that I would have been feeling like that I should have laughed at him, but there was the fact. The weather made me liverish. The talk of the ordinary Englishman made me sick. I couldn't get enough exercise, and the amusements of London seemed as flat as soda water that had been standing in the sun. Richard Hannay, I kept telling myself, you have got into the wrong ditch, my friend, and you had better climb out. It made me bite my lips to think of the plans I had been building up those last years in Bulawayo. I had got my pile, not one of the big ones, but good enough for me, and I had figured out all kinds of ways of enjoying myself. My father had brought me out from Scotland at the age of six, and I had never been home since. So England was a sort of Arabian Nights to me, and I counted on stopping there for the rest of my days. But from the first I was disappointed with it. In about a week I was tired of seeing sights, and in less than a month I had had enough of restaurants and theatres and race meetings. I had no real pal to go about with, which probably explains things. Plenty of people invited me to their houses, but they didn't seem much interested in me. They would fling me a question or two about South Africa, and then get on to their own affairs. A lot of imperialist ladies asked me to tea to meet schoolmasters from New Zealand and editors from Vancouver, and that was the dismalest business of all. Here was I, thirty-seven years old, sound in wind and limb, with enough money to have a good time, yawning my head off all day. I had just about settled to clear out and get back to the Veld, for I was the best board man in the United Kingdom. <laughs> so he's somebody who's obviously quite well-travelled, who's kind of lived in a few places. He's one of these people who's, like we found at Styles, got enough money or investments or land or something behind him that he doesn't really have to work. And so he's just bumming around the UK. It's a very interesting start to a book, really, isn't it? Mm. Starting with a character that's just bored. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bold, that, it's, move. bold move. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, in some ways, yes. But in some ways, it's sort of that classic, we get the sense that it's going to be an ordinary man thrust into an extraordinary world. You get that kind oh, yeah, of Bilbo no, Baggins, true. everyman quality. Very true. And in terms of, yeah, in terms from like a narrative theory point of view, you often start with an equilibrium that is then disrupted. So I think in that sense, it's probably quite, probably quite a nice way to, to kick things off because something, something's going to happen. That afternoon, I had been worrying my brokers about investments to give my mind something to work on. And on my way home, I turned into my club. <laughs> so basically, he's sitting there going, I want to create drama for myself. Put everything into onions or like just something like <laughs> yeah. Put all my money into like Let's something spice really random. up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the like the, the white collar version of gambling your life away, really, isn't it? But like under the legitimacy of an investment. <laughs> <laughs> And on my way home, I turned into my club, rather a pothouse which took in colonial members. I had a long drink and read the evening papers. They were full of the row in the Near East, and there was an article about Carolides, the Greek premier. I rather fancied the chap. 
From all accounts, he seemed the one big man in the show, and he played a straight game too, which was more than could be said for most of them. I gathered that they hated him pretty blackly in Berlin and Vienna, and that we were going to stick by him, and one paper said that he was the only barrier between Europe and Armageddon. I remember wondering if I could get a job in those parts. It struck me that Albania was the sort of place that might keep a man from yawning. So he just basically, he just basically needs he just needs to go something ridiculous. Like you need he needs to be an astronaut if he was like now. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. yeah, just join the army. But I don't know because after some in the army, you don't sort of serve in war zones. So maybe he needs to start doing parkour or like base jumping. <laughs> yes, I think he does. That's what that's yeah. it. That's what it's. Well, I wonder if it's actually worthwhile mentioning here because looking at the um, history of John Buchan, he basically was medically unfit for active service in 1914. And he was yeah. confined to his bed in the early months of the war and he began to write. But then he ended up actually working in the War Propaganda Bureau. And that's where he found his niche for the, for the war. And he was appointed director of a new department of information and that was created by the cabinet. And he had a salary that's equivalent to about 77000 in today's money, which was £1,000 a year. And he wow. had direct responsibility to the prime minister. So maybe this is him kind of living out his war frustration through this character as well. Like being like, I want to be where the action is. I want to be where things are kicking off, but not being able to live out that in his real life as well. So maybe he put his frustrations into this character. About six o'clock, I went home, dressed, dined at the Café Royale and turned into a music hall. It was a silly show, all capering women and monkey-faced men, and I did not stay long. The night was fine and clear, and I walked back to the flat I had hired near Portland Place. The crowd surged past me on the pavements, busy and chattering, and I envied the people for having something to do. These shop girls and clerks and dandies and policemen had some interest in life that kept them going, I gave half a crown to a beggar because I saw him yawn. He was a fellow sufferer. No, no, no. You're, you're not in the same boat, dude. Yeah, guy, let's, guy's not, let's not uh, start oh, comparing oh, your I life. Feel you, I feel you, friend, because I too am bored with life. But no, <laughs> skip that. You just come, come back now. from Africa and you could go there again if you wanted to. Yeah. We all desperately want to like our protagonists, so don't start by acting like a knob, please. Yeah. Particularly if, I mean, being bored because you don't need to work because you have so much money is not the same as being a, a vagrant who has no job and has to beg. Because begging's boring as well. You're sitting there, but, like, you're having to do it in order to get by. Like, it's not the same situation. No. At Oxford Circus, I looked up into the spring sky and I made a vow. I would give the old country another day to fit me into something... If nothing happened, I would take the next boat for the Cape. My flat was the first floor in a new block behind Langham Place. There was a common staircase with a porter and a liftman at the entrance, but there was no restaurant or anything of that sort, and each flat was quite shut off from the others. I hate servants on the premises, so I had a fellow to look after me who came in by the day. 
he arrived before eight o'clock every morning and used to depart at seven, for I never dined at home. So basically just... he's like, I love having servants, but I don't want them living with me. I don't want to see them. <laughs> I don't want to have to I'm give them there. a roof over That's their heads. Right. I want them to go where I don't have to see them or be upset at their poverty. I want them to turn up, do their job, be invisible and go home. <laughs> I mean, it seems like he's got he's got a cushy life going on. And the fact that he never eats at home just means he just gets to just restaurant to restaurant. Well, this is the Ooh. thing. It sounds very, very fun to me. He's going to see shows. He's going to clubs. He's going to restaurants. Yeah. It's like if he wants something more to do with his life, maybe like get rid of the servant and actually do stuff yourself you might have more to fill your day if you're having to actually do a laundry day or do your own post or something it's it. something to do get the dustpan and brush out mate yeah i was just fitting my key into the door when i noticed a man at my elbow i had not seen him approach and the sudden appearance made me start he was a slim man with a short brown beard and small gimlety blue eyes I recognised him as the occupant of the flat on the top floor with whom I had passed the time of day on the stairs. And our first character is said gimlety blue-eyed man. So what does he say? Please, thank you very much. My idea was to make him old blue eyes, to make him Frank Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) And and every single thing you, anything he says, you sing in the style of Frank Sinatra. (laughs) We haven't had one of those for a while. Sure. And this is this is where we find out that this character ends up being his sidekick for the entire novel. Well, yes. it's the risk I'm willing to wake. It's uh, okay. Uh, I'm gonna tell you about a thing. Okay. <laughs> and he clicks as he talks. <laughs> Great. Well, you guys have got to play Why the bra. Be a lady tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I, I feel like I need to just warm up my Frank. I just yeah. need to do a little bit of... Uh, I mean, he sings very low, so you don't have to do anything high, thankfully. Okay, yeah. start spreading the news. Okay. Can I speak with you? He said. May I come in for a minute? <laughs> he was steadying his voice with an effort, and his <laughs> hand was pouring my arm. I got my door open and motioned him in. No sooner was he over the threshold than he made a dash for my back room, where I used to smoke and write my letters. Then he bolted back. Is the door locked? He asked (laughs) feverishly, and he fastened the chain with his own hand. I'm very sorry, he said humbly. It's a mighty liberty, but you look the kind of man who would understand (laughs) i had you in my mind all this week when things got troublesome say will you do me a good turn a little rhyming couplet in there in the middle it's lovely yeah (laughs) when it's rhymes and there's some rhythm to it you're like ah yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) i'll listen to you i said that's all i'll promise I was getting worried by the antics of this nervous little chap. There was a tray of drinks on the table beside him, from which he filled himself a stiff whiskey and soda. He drank it off in three gulps and cracked the glass as he set it down. Pardon, he said. 
I'm a bit rattled tonight. You see, I happen at this moment to be dead. <laughs> what would you do if someone walked up to you a stranger and was just like I'm dead <laughs> you'd just be like what the hell is going on uh, am I seeing dead people or is this person crazy those are the only two options really aren't they it's not, yeah, it's not I see dead people it's I am dead people I, <laughs> I know I'm dead <laughs> I am dead people <laughs> I love that I sat down in an armchair and lit my pipe what does it feel like? I asked. <laughs> That's, that is quite a, an accepting if you response someone, to that. I've, I've returned from the dead. What would you ask them for the first time? Uh, yeah. What does like, it feel like? Yeah. I think he's literally just gone, eh, well, this will stop me being bored for the next five I minutes. Say, I was going to say, it's like, I, Yeah, it's funny because he does this whole, like, it's so theatrical. It's like, I'm going to give myself one more day. Otherwise, I'm going to go away. And it's the first thing that happens. Like yeah. A very, like, theatrical device, isn't it? Yeah. I'm going to fall in love with the first person that goes through that door. Not the second, not the third, not the third person. Oh, it's you. A dead uh, guy. Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty certain that I had to deal with a madman. A smile flickered over his drawn face. I'm not mad yet. <laughs> Say, sir, I've been watching you and I reckon you're cool, customer. I reckon, too, you're an honest man and not afraid of playing a bold hand. Another rhyme! I'm going to confide in you. I need help worse than any man ever needed it. And I want to know if I can count you in. Get on with your yarn, I said, and I'll tell you. He seemed to brace himself for a great effort and then started on the queerest rigmarole. I didn't get hold of it at first and I had to stop and ask him questions. But here's the gist of it. Oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I haven't got to sing the whole story. <laughs> I was wondering if that was coming. It was going to be some big Pinocchio monologue. And I yes. <laughs> riff the whole thing. <clears throat> he was an American from Kentucky. Oh, it would have been well, nice not, to have known that not before. Far off. I mean, we're, we're not far American, off. at least. Yeah. From Kentucky. So really, he should be singing in country rather than swing. Don't Never change mind. it now. <laughs> he was embarrassed. Oh, my big old baby like to eat. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? <laughs> he moved away from his southern roots, okay? And after college, being pretty well off, he had started out to see the world. He wrote a bit and acted as war correspondent for a Chicago paper and spent a year or two in southeastern Europe. I gathered that he was a fine linguist and had got to know pretty well the society in those parts. He spoke familiarly of many names that I remembered to have seen in the newspapers. He had played about with politics, he told me, at first for the interest of them and then because he couldn't help himself. I read him as a sharp, restless fellow who always wanted to get down to the roots of things. He got a little further down than he wanted. I'm giving you what he told me as well as I could make it out. 
away behind all the governments and the armies, there was a big subterranean movement going on, engineered by very dangerous people. He had come on it by accident. It fascinated him. He went further, and then he got caught. I gathered that most of the people in it were the sort of educated anarchists that make revolutions, but that beside them there were financiers who were playing for money. A clever man can make big profits on a falling market, and it suited the book of both classes to set Europe by the ears. He told me some queer things that explained a lot that had puzzled me. Things that happened in the Balkan War. How one state suddenly came out on top. Why alliances were made and broken. Why certain men disappeared. And where the sinews of war came from. The aim of the whole conspiracy was to get Russia and Germany at loggerheads. When I asked why, he said that the anarchist lot thought it would give them their chance. Everything would be in the melting pot and they looked to see a new world emerge. The capitalists would rake at the shekels and make fortunes by buying up wreckage. Capital, he said, had no conscience and no fatherland. Besides, the Jew was behind it, and the Jew hated Russia worse than hell. Do you wonder, he cried, for three hundred years they have been persecuted, and this is the return match for the pogroms. The Jew is everywhere, but you have to go far down and back stairs to find him. Take any big Teutonic business concern. If you have dealings with it, the first man you meet is Prince von Unzu something, an elegant man who talks Eton and Harrow English, but he cuts no ice. If your business is big, you get behind him and find a prognathus westphalian and a retreating brow and the manners of a hog he is the german businessman that gives your english papers the shakes but if you're on the biggest kind of job and are bound to get to the real boss ten to one you are brought up against a little white-faced jew in a bath chair with an eye like a rattlesnake Yes, sir, he is the man who is ruling the world just now, and he has his knife in the empire of the Tsar, because his aunt was outraged, and his father flogged in some one-horse location on the Volga. Is this kind of like um, the early 20th century version of the Illuminati, saying? Uh, I don't know whether what he's saying is like I know these are the people I've spoken to, but it's like no, this is behind it all. They're they're pulling the strings and creating these wars to, in order to get these people against each other for their own capitalist gains. I mean, is this is basically why anti-Semitism was so easy to rile up, leading up to World War Two, because people genuinely believed these conspiracy theories that basically. Jews were behind the money and pulling all the strings and causing all of the problems and causing all the poverty and causing all these issues. And so it was it was quite easy for them to kind of 
feed off, like just like Donald Trump with his immigrant rhetoric regarding the border wall, it's very easy to stir up anger when you're telling people, yeah, your issues are because of these people over here. So it's quite illuminating. I mean, obviously, the anti-Semitism is completely unforgivable and horrible. And we apologise for that being in the book. We're just kind of reading what's kind of in there. And it kind of is obviously representative of the time and unfortunately the attitudes of the people that are around in this time. But it does give you a snapshot into how this, you know, the World War One and coming out of World War One was the powder keg that set the fire for, you know, Holocaust and all the rest of it. These were sure. attitudes that everyday people held within society and so you kind of sit there and you go well how does anti-semitism rise so easily in this racism against the Jews it's because everybody unfortunately already felt like this and that was kind of the issue because it wasn't like they fabricated this brand new prejudice or this brand new hatred out of anywhere they fed on one that already existed and they just twisted it for their own political gain for sure so I have That's a feeling basically what kind of seems to have happened in this is that this guy was an American traveling through Europe. He's basically had a little thing with politics. He's met some influential people and he's fallen down a rabbit hole where he's gotten himself involved with some anarchists who are obviously trying to upset the current world order in Europe and trying to get russia and germany at loggerheads the so russia and germany to fight each other and he's basically trying to say the whole thing is related to money and if you follow the money then you end up in anti-semitic territory <laughs> that's basically where this sure. guy's whole spiel is coming from right now i could not help saying that his jew anarchist seemed to have got left behind a little yes and no he said they won up to a point, but they struck a bigger thing than money, a thing that couldn't be bought, the old elemental fighting instincts of man. If you're going to be killed, you invent some kind of flag and country to fight for. If you survive, you get to love the thing. Those foolish devils of soldiers have found something they care for. And that has upset the pretty plan laid in Berlin and Vienna. But my friends haven't played their last card by a long sight. They've gotten the ace up their sleeves. And unless I can keep alive for a month, they're going to play it and win. But I thought you were dead. I put in. <laughs> Fair enough. More Juana Vitae. He smiled. I recognised the quotation. It was about all the Latin I knew. That little piece of Latin means death is the gate to life. I have a feeling what he's basically saying there is I need to be dead in order to stay alive. Because if they think I'm dead, they're not going to come after me. I'm, I'm assuming is what he means by there. Yeah. I'm coming to that, but I've got to put your wise about a lot of things first. If you read the newspaper, I guess you know the name of Constantine Karolides. I sat up for that, for I had been reading about him that very afternoon. He is the man that has wrecked all their games. 
He is the one big brain in the whole show. And he happens also to be an honest man. Therefore, he has been marked down these 12 months past. I found that out. Not that it was difficult, for any fool could guess as much. But I found out the way they were going to get him, and that knowledge was deadly. That's why I have had two DCs. He had another drink, and I mixed it for him myself, for I was getting interested in the beggar. They can't get him out of his own land, for he has a bodyguard of impurities that would skin their grandmothers. But on the 15th day of June, he is coming to this city. The British Foreign Office has taken to having international tea parties, and the biggest of them is due on that date. Now, Carolides is reckoned the principal guest, and if my friends have their way, he will never return to his admiring countrymen. They're going to Archduke Franz Ferdinand is, but when he comes, they're going to assassinate him when he comes out to London. Yeah. It's like the time that he's going to be out of his gaff. That's simple enough, anyhow, I said. You can warn him and keep him at home. And play their game. He asked sharply. If he does not come, they win. For he's the only man that can straighten out the tangle. And if his government are warned, he won't come. For he does not know how big the stakes will be on June the 15th. (laughs) What about the British government? I said. They're not going to let their guests be murdered. Tip them the wink and they'll take extra precautions. No good! They might stuff your city with plainclothes detectives and double the police and Constantine would still be a doomed man. My friends are not playing this game for candy. They want a big occasion for the taking off. With the eyes of all Europe on it. He'll be murdered by an Austrian, and there'll be plenty of evidence to show the connivance of the big folk in Vienna and Berlin. It will all be an infernal lie, of course. But the case will look black enough to the world. I'm not talking hot air, my friend. I happen to know every detail of the hellish contrivance. And I can tell you, it will be the most finished piece of black godism since the Borges. But it's not gonna come off if there's a certain man who knows the wheels of the business alive right here in London on the 15th day of June. And that man is gonna be your servant, Franklin P. Scudder. I was getting to like the little chap. His jaw had shut like a rat trap, and there was the fire of battle in his gimlety eyes. If he was spinning me a yarn, he could act up to it. Where did you find out this story? I asked. 
I got the first hint in an inn on the Achensee in Tyrol. That set me inquiring, and I collected my other clues. In a fur shop in the Galician quarter of Buda, in a stranger's club in Vienna, and in the little bookshop of Rachnissenstrasse in Leipzig. I completed my evidence ten days ago in Paris. I can't tell you the details now, for it's something of a history. When I was quite sure in my own mind, I judged it my business to disappear. And I reached this city by a mighty queer circuit. I left Paris a dandified young French-American. And I sailed from Hamburg, a Jew diamond merchant. In Norway, I was an English student of Ibsen, collecting materials for lectures. But when I left Bergen, I was a cinema man with a special ski film. <laughs> what random I, you would hear this, what... and you'd be like, "You're making this up. Yeah, this is yeah. this is uh... nonsense." <laughs> of all the things, I was a cinema man with special ski films. What's that? What is a special ski? I have no ski idea. Film? No idea. Not just, I'm just imagine not like just a really like one... you know you know they they like they they basically know like cinema was just like the black and white things going really really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just imagining someone like skiing, just downhill like, slalom. That's it. I'm actually just I... imagining the little video of the the fridge skiing on the cheese moon. That's what I was thinking. That's where I put it the happiest fridge in all the land yes and i came here from leith with a lot of pulpwood propositions in my pocket to put before the london newspapers till yesterday i thought i had muddied my trail some and was feeling pretty happy then the recollection seemed to upset him and he gulped down some more whiskey. Then I saw a man standing in the street outside this block. I used to stay close in my room all day and only slip out after dark for an hour or two. I watched him for a bit from my window and I thought I recognized him. He came in and spoke to the porter. When I came back from my walk last night, I found a card in my letterbox. It bore the name of a man I want least to meet on God's earth. I think that the look in my companion's eyes, the sheer naked scare on his face, completed my conviction of his honesty. My own voice sharpened a bit, as I asked him what he did next. I realized that I was bottled as sure as a pickled herring, and that there was only one way out. I had to die if my pursuers knew I was dead, they would go to sleep again how did you manage it i told the man that valets me that i was feeling pretty bad and i got myself up to look like death 
that wasn't difficult for I'm no slouch at disguises. Then I got a corpse. You can <laughs> always get a body in London if you know where to go for it. I fetched it back in a trunk on the top of a four-wheeler. And I had to be assisted upstairs to my room. You see, I had to pile up some evidence for the inquest. I went to bed and got my man to mix me a sleeping draft and then told him to clear out. He wanted to fetch a doctor, but I swore some and said I couldn't abide leeches. When I was left alone, I started in to fake up that corpse. He was my size, and I judged he'd perished from too much alcohol. So I put him some spirits handy about the place. The jaw was the weak point in the likeness. So I blew it away with a revolver. <laughs> Jesus. So wait, he's just like, this guy doesn't look like me. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Your chin doesn't look like David Beckham's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a very efficient way of making it so that people can't really tell, I suppose. Oh. But it seems a bit excessive. Oh dear, but and I'm amazed that like, like so what died of like overdose or something, not like he got shot because then there's a whole other thing to do there. I don't know. Well, it seems to be a whole suicide thing, isn't it? It's like, well, if he's been drinking and then he shot himself, they've they've done it. But I'm amazed that like, if he's his neighbour, did he not hear the gun? Wow. Well, don't want to hear a gun. Like in London, like pillow. having a gun is really like not very common. Sure. Maybe I don't know at this time. Maybe more people had guns in 1915. I don't know, but I doubt it. Yeah. You know, this isn't America, so having a gunshot go off, a lot of people would phone the police normally. Mm. Like there's no one on my floor. Well, doesn't matter about your floor, dude. There's people above you and below you. Yeah. Like, gunshots are unbelievably loud. Yeah. Very much so. I dare say there will be somebody tomorrow to swear to having heard a shot, but there are no neighbors on my floor. And I guessed I could risk it. So I left the body in bed, dressed up in my pajamas, with a revolver lying on the bedclothes and a considerable mess around. Then I got into a suit of clothes I had kept waiting for emergencies. I didn't dare to shave for fear of leaving tracks. And besides, it wasn't any kind of use my trying to get into the streets. I had had you in my mind all day and there seemed nothing to do but to make an appeal to you. I watched from my window till I saw you come home. Then I slipped down the stair to meet you. There, sir, I guess you know about as much as me of this business. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big bit of text. No, do you know, I sang that as an end of a song. It, 
praying that really that it he was the end speak of the story. I, I liked it how it, do you know what Josh I'm very impressed I liked how you sort of modulated it made, modulated it with like little key changes the drama yeah it's definitely what they do in musicals and yeah and he, and he sort of slipped into that little minor key every mm. time you thought oh spaghettios well, and then you ended on a high because he's like oh, <laughs> I just want to point out that like this guy has put a dead body in his own house shot it in the jaw put a suit on and he thinks that going to see his neighbor that no one's going to recognize him just because he's wearing a suit he's not worn before <laughs> can we just can we just wait? can you imagine like me going outside to my neighbors wearing different clothes and thinking that my neighbor's not going to recognize me just because i'm wearing a different outfit that they've not seen me wear like i haven't changed anything to do my face my hair my facial hair anything like they everyone's gonna recognize you and also in these, I mean, in these days it was like it was suit 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 exactly suit, suit, i mean the least you could do suit. is order a, a, a fake beard from a london costumers he sat blinking like an owl fluttering with nerves and yet desperately determined by this time i was pretty well convinced that he was going straight with me it was the wildest sort of narrative, but I had heard in my time many steep tales which had turned out to be true, and I had made practice of judging the man rather than the story. If he had wanted to get a location in my flat and then cut my throat, he would have pitched a milder yarn. Hand me your key, I said, and I'll take a look at the corpse. Excuse my caution, but I'm bound to verify a bit if I can. He shook his head mournfully. I reckon you'd ask for that, but I haven't got it. It's on my chain on the dressing table. I had to leave it behind, for I couldn't leave any clues to breed suspicions. The gentry who were after me are pretty bright-eyed citizens. You'll have to take me on trust for the night, and tomorrow you'll get proof of the corpse business right enough. I thought for an instant or two. Right. I'll trust you for the night. I'll lock you into this room and keep the key. Just one word, Mr. Scudder. I believe you're straight, but if so be you are not, I should warn you that I'm a handy man with a gun. Sure, he said, jumping up with some briskness. I haven't the privilege of your name, sir, but let me tell you that you're a white man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And what uh, does that have to do with it? <laughs> Play the white man is a phrase used in parts of Britain, meaning to be decent and trustworthy in one's actions. And it's a phrase commonly used by natives in Yorkshire. So it's it's a slang thing, not an actual thing about his skin colour. I'll thank you to lend me a razor. I took him into my bedroom and turned him loose. In half an hour's time, a figure came out that I scarcely recognised. Only his gimlety, hungry eyes were the same. He was shaved clean, his hair was parted in the middle, and he had cut his eyebrows. Further, he carried himself as if he had been drilled, and was the very model even to the brown complexion of some British officer who had had a long spell in India. He had a monocle, too, 
which he stuck in his eye, and every trace of the American had gone out of his speech. "'My hat! Mr Scudder!' I stammered. And then, because he's now changing his whatever, should... Because he says a, a British a British officer who'd been in India. So what makes me kind of think of that is that kind of Stephen Fry in like Blackadder goes forth, that kind of general... Could we give him like a, oh, bully, kind of like, you know, yeah. darling? Okay, yes, I was right. <laughs> Not Mr Scudder, he corrected. Captain Theophilus Digby of the 40th Gurkhas, presently home on leave. I'll thank you to remember that, sir. I made him up a bed in my smoking room and sought my own couch, more cheerful than I had been for the past month. Things did happen occasionally, even in this God-forgotten metropolis. I woke next morning to hear my man, Paddock, making a deuce of a row at the smoking room door. Paddock was a fellow I had done a good turn to, out on the Seliquay, and I had inspanned him as my servant as soon as I got to England. He had about as much gift of the gab as a hippopotamus, and was not a great hand at valeting, but I knew I could count on his loyalty. Stop that row, Paddock, I said. There's a friend of mine, Captain... Captain... I couldn't remember the name... Dossing down in there. Get breakfast for two and then come and speak to me. I told Paddock a fine story about how my friend was a great swell and his nerves pretty bad from overwork, who wanted absolute rest and stillness. Nobody had got to know he was here or he would be besieged by communications from the India office and the Prime Minister and his cure would be ruined. I am bound to say Scudder played up splendidly when he came to breakfast. He fixed Paddock up with his eyeglass, just like a British officer, asked him about the Boer War, and slung out at me a lot of stuff about imaginary pals. Paddock couldn't learn to call me, sir, but he served Scudder as if his life depended on it. I left him with the newspaper and a box of cigars and went down to the city till luncheon. When I got back, the liftman had an important face. And then the, the liftman speaks, and it's written in quite Ooh. a... Oh, yeah. Written in no, quite a, no, a, a when cockney. In there, yeah, it's definitely a, a cockney accent. Yeah, but he's he's obviously he's he, we can do the vacancy, but he's definitely um, he's attempting to write a dialect. They're, yeah, yeah, they've literally written it kind of like you know uh, phonetically. Oh, yeah. So yeah, they're making me stand, but like not the quickest or a bit. Every, everything you're saying is like because so you almost like you've almost got that sort of furrowed brow of like everything is just so confusing. You're, you're you. still trying to work it out. <laughs> you're like, what are you talking about? That yeah. Thing? Well, yeah. we've landed on my first perfect casting, gents. Just <laughs> always going to keep, keep up. Yeah, that's it. Oh. <laughs> Nasty business here this morning, sir. Gently, number 15, been and shot yourself. They just took him to the mortuary. The police are up there now. I ascended to number 15 and found a couple of bobbies and an inspector busy making an examination. I asked a few idiotic questions and they soon kicked me out. Then I found the man that had valeted Scudder and pumped him. But I could see that he suspected nothing. 
He was a whining fellow with a churchyard face, and half a crown went far to console him. I attended the inquest next day. A partner of some publishing firm gave evidence that the deceased had brought him woodpulp propositions, and had been, he believed, an agent of an American business. The jury found it a case of suicide, while of unsound mind, and the few effects were handed over to the American consul to deal with. I gave Scudder a full account of the affair, and it interested him greatly. He said he wished he could have attended the inquest, for he reckoned it would be about as spicy as to read one's own obituary notice. (laughs) The first two days he stayed with me in that back room, he was very peaceful. He read and smoked a bit, and made a heap of jottings in a notebook, and every night we had a game of chess, at which he beat me hollow. I think he was nursing his nerves back to health, for he had had a pretty trying time. But on the third day, I could see he was beginning to get restless. He fixed up a list of the days till June the 15th, and ticked each off with a red pencil, making remarks in shorthand against them. I would find him sunk in a brown study, with his sharp eyes abstracted, and after those spells of meditation, he was apt to be very despondent. Then I could see that he began to get edgy again. He listened for little noises, and was always asking me if Paddock could be trusted. Once or twice he got very peevish and apologised for it. I didn't blame him. I made every allowance for he had taken on a fairly stiff job. It was not the safety of his own skin that troubled him, but the success of the scheme he had planned. That little man was clean grit all through, without a soft spot in him. One night he was very solemn. "'Say, Hannay,' he said, "'I judge I should let you a bit deeper into this business. I should hate to go out without leaving somebody else to put up a fight.' and he began to tell me in detail what I had only heard from him vaguely. I did not give him very close attention. The fact is, I was more interested in his own adventures than in his high politics. I reckoned that Caroline's and his affairs were not my business, leaving all that to him. So a lot that he said slipped clean out of my memory. I remember that he was very clear that the danger to Caroline's would not begin till he had got to London and would come from the very highest quarters, where there would be no thought of suspicion. He mentioned the name of a woman, Julia Chechenyi, as having something to do with the danger. She would be the decoy, I gathered, to get Carolides out of the care of his guards. He talked, too, about a black stone, and a man that lisped in his speech, and he described very particularly somebody that he never referred to without a shudder, an old man with a young voice who could hood his eyes like a hawk. He spoke a good deal about death, too. He was mortally anxious about winning through with his job, but he didn't care a rush for his life. I reckon it's like going to sleep when you're pretty well tired out and waking up to find a summer day with the scent of hay coming in at the window. I used to thank God for such mornings way back in the bluegrass country, and I guess I'll thank him when I wake up on the other side of Jordan. Next day, he was very much more cheerful, 
and read the life of Stonewall Jackson much of the time. I went out to dinner with a mining engineer I'd got to see on business and came back about half past ten in time for our game of chess before turning in. I had a cigar in my mouth, I remember, as I pushed open the smoking room door. The lights were not lit, which struck me as odd. I wondered if Scudder had turned in already. I snapped a switch, but there was nobody there. Then I saw something in the far corner which made me drop my cigar and fall into a cold sweat. My guest was lying sprawled on his back. There was a long knife through his heart which skewered him to the floor. End of chapter. Bloody hell. It was a very dramatic ending to the first chapter, isn't it? <laughs> My it work. Matt. It's another who has done this. Who has done this? <laughs> kind of. Josh just like celebrated so much when he saw that knife through his heart. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was literally God. like, two voices I'll never have to do again. Yeah. So, I mean, basically what's set up, so there's a conspiracy that somebody's going to get killed on the 15th of June. This guy's the only person who knows about it and is is hell-bent on stopping it from happening. Preventing the assassination, yeah. One thing that is hilarious is that he seems to think that he's safe in just the fl- the flat underneath the one that he was already living in. Like, if if a spy stationed outside your house, they would have seen that that new guy hadn't walked in, the yeah. new person you're pretending to be. Yeah, so it didn't help. You might as well have just... No. And also, if the guy you're surveilling walks up with a random massive trunk and then suddenly a dead body appears in his flat, I think you're probably going to put two and two together if you're you're actually a spy, right? You're like, well, let's just wait for the other dude to leave because he went out for dinner with a random engineer. I was like, okay. Yeah. It's quite random, wasn't it? Well, maybe maybe he was playing the tactic of the closer you are to danger, the further you are from harm. I think this is just a convenient thing just to basically set the story up. What's important towards the end of that is the fact that he's like, if I die, I need somebody else who can make sure that they stop this. I'm assuming that the rest of the book is him now trying to help his friend out by completing his life's work. Against these mystery people, which is... Yeah. Looking at the the setting on here, it says... It was published in 1915, but the story begins in May 1914 on the cusp of the First World War. This is maybe an alternative way to a world war starting. A premiere of a Greek country being assassinated in London with a conspiracy that would be done by an Austrian to make Germany and Russia go to... Do you know what I mean? So he's obviously reimagining the start of the First World War, which started with an assassination... And kind of making up a make-believe version where it's like, oh, I'm actually going to try and have this random citizen in London try and stop World War One from starting. So it's actually quite an interesting premise for a book. It's like, oh, so World War started because of this one killing. What would happen if that killing was stopped? A modern sort of imagine, like an alternate reality of something that's already happening. We have that a lot, you know, like fake terrorists and fake Mm -hmm. prime ministers and presidents and it allows us to play within a world which we're very familiar with without actually getting too close to the bone yeah yeah um, it sounds a bit like the concept of no i haven't watched it but i, I it was sort of on the list the amazon series the 
is it because the man in the high castle or something yeah 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 where, uh, it's yeah, an that, alternate really, where germany and japan won the second world war and split yeah. america between them yeah but you're right it's quite a grip quite a quite a gripping concept in terms of yeah. like oh what you know he's going to be thrust into this world aside it's a very fascinating concept i say like, once again apologize for that yeah, but, uh, I mean, we are reading these texts and they are old. And unfortunately, as we found in styles as well, there can be some problematic language in these things. Because I mean, I don't the think there's been the one novel that we've read so far that hasn't had a little bit of risque non PC. Yeah, no, so. it's true. It's yeah, we true. can't read anything new. <laughs> no, we're not allowed because of copyright. I'm pretty sure everyone's got that by now. They're like, mm. why don't they do Harry Potter? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, I mean, in its own way, as long as you handle it delicately, it's an interesting because you learn about things oh we learn about because of this anti-semitism it led to all of these assumptions which then led to the persecution it's yeah. it was the fire that was stoked so it is important yeah. to read it from almost like a first perspective and yes it is like a bit of a slap in the face every time you get yeah. these like, words that you're not allowed to use anymore and i think it's really fascinating to read stuff that was written during this the, the, the great war and getting the perspective on on what the the perceptions were there because naturally time does change things and history is perceived slightly differently you know after an event's happened than during it didn't you know whatever so i think you know we'll get a lot of those kind of little insights um and some of those are going to be insights into you know opinions that you know we don't hold now. So what's the chapter title for the next instalment, Josh? So I can tell you that chapter two is called "The Milkman Sets Out on His Travels." <laughs> so uh, that's that kind of book, uh, isn't it? We, oh to my be goodness! Able to, start to have a guess the next chapter competition. We might have to do guess the next chapter. Has he taken a leaf out of Scudder's? book and dressed himself up as the milkman to escape the flat on his journey so that people don't follow him maybe he's gonna have to yeah take on an alias as well yeah well because if you found someone dead in your flat and you're thinking crap do they know that he's passed on the information to me i know i'm gonna have to they know that i know do they know that i know that they know that i know (laughs) (laughs) i mean where does it end right I'm actually really excited to see where this goes because it's definitely we knew that this novel was going to be a thriller and that it was going to be something that was quite high action. But straight away, they painted a very interesting story and I'm kind of really looking Mm. forward to see where this goes. So if you have any thoughts or opinions on this chapter, you can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Or if you've got some Eastern European conspiracy theories to start a new <laughs> Third World War for us to know about, or if you just want to say something nice, you can do so on Twitter at Lazy Book Club Pod. Yeah. If you want to say something anti Semitic, go away. We don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you've got something nice, we're on Instagram at Lazy Book Club Pod. <laughs> we're also on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash lazy book club pod and for the very small fee of three dollars a month you get an extra episode a month and you also get to see the videos of us recording as well and if i've edited the stuff in time you also get early release everybody who was a patreon subscriber would have gotten chapter 13 of poirot and chapter 12 of poirot a good five days before everybody else so it was had quite a few people sign up yeah, just because they wanted that early release. They wanted to know who no. did it. I don't want to know about your early release. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> 
And on that note, we will see you next time for chapter two of the 39 steps. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Oh, God, my mum listens to this. <laughs>